Okay. My title for you this morning is this, By His Righteousness. By His Righteousness. Let me begin by saying this. We are a self-confident people. Amen? And although the Bible teaches us that pride goes before destruction, we are stubborn and undeterred to give up our self-confidence and our faith in our own ways, even though it is our faith in our own ways that has gotten us in the sinful mess in which we live. There are three important words that unfold in the text before us this morning. Crossing, covenant, and command. There isn't an accidental order to this formula, church. Crossing, covenant, and command. In fact, quite the contrary, everything that God does, he does with order and he does with purpose in which his providence is clearly seen and witnessed so that we might, as Christians, say, as Christ did to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, we speak of what we know and witness to that which we have seen. Have we seen some things, church? We mustn't be ignorant of the providence of God in history. And we mustn't be ignorant of the providence of God in our lives. And we mustn't be ignorant of the providence of God in this world. The map of his providence, with all of its terrain and topography, is found in the word of God, the Bible. We should, therefore, read it with our fingertips, feeling every nuance and bump that indicates his work for his namesake and for his people. This morning, I aim to do just that. I want us to see the providence of God in the world and in the lives of his people as we look at three particular points in Deuteronomy 9 through 10, verse 11. The crossing, the covenant, and the command. All by his righteousness. So let's begin with our first point this morning, which is the crossing. The crossing, again, by his righteousness. First, Moses addresses the crossing. And of course, what I mean by this is, is what is clearly referred to as the Exodus. When God delivered his people from Egypt, from bondage and slavery, in chapter 5, verse 15, when he miraculously split the Red Sea, and in particular, chapter 9, verse 1 here, not just the Red Sea, but even the Jordan River, in order to bring them from the land of bondage into the land that is called the promised land. We know this is historical. It's been faithfully recorded in God's inspired word, the Bible, and it's been carefully protected through the years of history so that we can confidently know, you and I, that we're reading God's word today. It doesn't contain God's word. It isn't close to God's word the Bible is God's word. But this isn't because of the people's ability, creativity, or ingenuity. We need to remember that what Moses is telling the people here as he recounts to them what has transpired providentially in their history is that it isn't because of their righteousness that they are there. It is because of his righteousness. Amen? It is because of God's righteousness in view of other people's unrighteousness that they have possessed the blessings that they have. I want to pause here for just a moment and ask you to reflect. 
I want to pause here just for a moment and ask you to reflect on the blessings that you possess in your life. And while you reflect on those blessings that you possess in your life, I'm going to say this. It's not because of your righteousness. It's because of his. Look at the text, if you would, please, very quickly. Verse 4, chapter 9, verse 4, it says, Do not say in your heart. You know, I hate when the Bible does this. It's like, I know what you're thinking, right? I know what you're going to say after I've said what I've said, and and I've got an indication in my mind as to what direction you're going to take this thing. Don't do it. Don't say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out, that is the enemies of God, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Three times in this text, verses 4, 5, and 6, God explicitly says to his people through Moses, I'm the one doing this work through you. Not because of your righteousness, but because of mine, and because you are executing justice and judgment on the wickedness of this people on my behalf. Church, hear me when I say this. Let's receive this lesson. The crossing was God's work, not theirs. It's all according to God's mercy. It's all according to God's grace. We need him. He doesn't need us. We rely upon him. He relies on no one. We pray to him for wisdom. But he is the source and fountain of wisdom and pursues wisdom from no one. Church, we can be and should be completely dependent upon God's righteousness and guidance in our lives. This formula for success is present in Deuteronomy chapters 9 and 10. If we gain nothing from the crossing, let us gain this, if nothing else that they were not able to successfully navigate this break from bondage and slavery and entrance into the promised land on their own. It was God's work in their life. It was God's providence in their life. The Bible says this repeatedly throughout in different places. For example, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 47. David, as a young man, is going up in battle against the great Philistine, Goliath. And everyone is raging that he's going to lose. And he says, the battle belongs to the Lord. Later, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, the disciples who are discouraged at the fact that those who are, at least in society's view, very successful, are unlikely to inherit the kingdom of heaven because they rely more upon their success, their righteousness, than they do God's. They come to Jesus and they say, if he can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus says in Matthew 19, 26, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Church, when it comes to the crossing, never play down the reality of this fact. If you can and if you do, it is only because of God. 
All glory will be given to God because it is by his righteousness and not our own. I guess what I'm trying to say is the crossing isn't about what Israel was capable of doing. It was about what God did through Israel. That is what the crossing indicates to us. But secondly, there's something else that's worthy of mention in this text, and that is this, the covenant. It's not only the crossing that is according to his righteousness, but it's also the covenant which is according to his righteousness. This is the second thing that Moses addresses. Now, in our last study of Deuteronomy chapter 8, which was a few weeks ago, Moses reminded the people not to forget the covenant. He reminded the people not to forget the covenant. He reminded them how important it was to be mindful of the agreement that they had with God. Let me share a couple of verses with you. Chapter 8, verse 11. Chapter 8, verse 11 says, Take care lest you forget. Take care lest you what? Forget. The Lord your God by keeping, by, excuse me, by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. That's chapter 8, verse 11. In chapter 8, verse 14, he warns them again not to become conceited. Quote, then your heart be, will be lifted up and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. So you see this idea around the covenant that Moses warns his people against, namely that they become forgetful of who God is and what God has done. Moses reminds them not to forget. May we not forget what God has done. Amen. May we not forget what God has done in our past so that we live with a small amount of faith in the present. So often, as Psalm 77 says, when we're struggling in the present, what we can do, he says, is recount the works of old. If we can remember what God has done in the past, it will sure up our faith in the present, and we can move with confidence into the future. But if we do not have faith in what God has done, if we have forgotten what God has done, then we will not live with faith. As you might recall, originally Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments from God, and when he came down from the mountain, he found that they were worshiping a golden calf. They had constructed this idol. It says in verse 16, And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. And Moses prays to God to spare them, even though God says, ah, I'm going to do something different here. I'm going to go, I'm going to move a different direction. And it says to us in this text something very interesting. I think that God posed a situation to Moses, and Moses, get this, as the shepherd of God's people, as the leader of God's people, a mediator between God and his people, if you will, as the recipient of God's law and as an experienced person in his grace. He stood between God and his people, and he prayed. He not only prayed, but he did it for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, some of us have problems praying for four minutes. I mean, this is a long deal. This is how serious the sin was. Let me take a quick turn here and say this. There's a correlation 
between how serious we view things and how serious we view prayer. If we do not pray regularly over things, then we do not view the seriousness of the thing or the seriousness of the God who can work through us on behalf of his name and in the circumstances we face. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says it like this, Ask and you will receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you with the assumption that we won't ask once or seek once or knock one time, but that we will do it with a persistence. In fact, the old Puritans used to say that sometimes God doesn't give us answers as we pray persistently because as we pray persistently, we grow closer to him. And he moves a little farther away, and we grow closer to him, and he moves a little farther away, and we grow closer to him, so that after he has worked with us through this season of prayer, when it has come to a close, we realize that because of that prayer, we have grown spiritually and in our relationship with God. Don't play down the magnitude and the importance of prayer in your life. I think what we see here is not God changing his mind. That certainly isn't what is taking place. God has never changed his mind. He has never been wrong about anything. But what we see here is God and his sovereign plan and pleasure in the way that he disposes things has decided to do the work that he has ordained to do through the means of prayer. And Moses prayed and God worked. In the New Testament, it says that Jesus and the Spirit of God pray for us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it says, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. You see that? Since Jesus is raised from the dead and is eternally at the right hand of the Father, amen? The author of Hebrews says, Jesus prays for you all the time. Jesus prays for you constantly to the Father. He's always mentioning you to the Father. Father, don't, don't forget. I, you see what Joe is doing, but don't forget, Father, he belongs to us. Jesus is always mentioning you. He's interceding for you on a regular basis. That's what Jesus does. Romans 8, 26. In Romans 8, 26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit of God helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself. You see, the Spirit is not some sort of force or impersonal aspect of spirituality. It says the Spirit himself. The Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit himself intercedes for us, listen to this, with groaning too deep for words. I don't think that what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8 is there's some sort of spiritual language that nobody can understand. I think what he's saying is, is the Spirit is praying prayers that are so amazing, so beautiful, they can't be articulated in human terms. We don't possess the vocabulary to give God the glory. 
for the intercession that is offered for us within the Trinity. Do not play down the importance of prayer in your life. The Son and the Spirit are praying for you like Moses prayed for the people so long ago. A couple of things worth noting here in this text. First, Moses identifies the people as God's people. This is part of the aspects that I want us to note of Moses' prayer. And the first thing is this. Moses identifies the people as God's people. He says it to God in three different ways, that they're your people, your heritage, and your servants. Three different ways. Your people, your heritage, and your servants. According to Deuteronomy chapter 7, a verse that we were in some time ago, God has sovereignly chosen his people from among the nations of the earth. And that hasn't changed. God's choice doesn't change. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says in Romans 11, that these things are without repentance. God's calling and election are without repentance. In other words, God is not shifting. He's not deciding one thing one day and deciding another another day. When God makes a choice, that choice is intact. Moses begins his prayer to God by saying, Lord, don't forget they're your people. Don't forget they're your heritage. Don't forget they're your servants. This is hard to do, amen? If you're a parent and you have a child and your child is living in a way that doesn't honor God or doesn't honor your family principles or those relations that have been made and are sustained within a family, it's hard to say, you're my child and I will always love you, but I can't approve what you're doing. That's a difficult line to walk. But the reality of the matter is, is it doesn't matter what your child ever does. Your child will always be your child. Good, bad, or ugly. Whether they make you proud or they embarrass you. Whether they have become all the things that you would ever wish or hope them to be. Or whether they have fallen miles short of the standard you wish they would achieve. Your child will only ever be your child. Now, that's not an excuse for unrighteousness. That's not permission for sin. That is, on the contrary, an expectation of discipline. And that's what Moses is having a conversation with God about in prayer right now. Lord, they're not just any people. They're whose people? They're your people. And we've learned from Deuteronomy, and we've learned from Proverbs 3, and we've learned from Hebrews chapter 12 that there is a discipline expectation in a family relation. If you are a child of God, then you're going to get the discipline of the Father. If you're not a child of God, then you won't get the discipline of the Father because you're not a child. I don't discipline your children. They're not my children. You don't discipline my children because they're not your children. But there's an expectation of discipline within this. And discipline is done where there is love, where there is ownership, Moses, the first thing I want you to note here, reminds God, and I use that word loosely, reminds God that they aren't just any people. They are his people. They are his heritage. They are his 
servants. Secondly, Moses never denies their sinfulness. He never denies their sinfulness. He flatly says, you can look at verse 24, he flatly says to the people of God, you've been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. I don't know a lot of parents that sit down at the dining room table and start the conversation by going, you've been a bad kid since you were three years old. I knew you were going to be bad. That's unlikely, isn't it? We, we, don't, we don't sit down and start that way because we, go, we, we tend to start this way. Now, you know, you know I love you. You know, you're, you know you're my pride and joy. You know, you know that no matter what you do, I will always love No, 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 no. You have to deal with facts. You can't lead a conversation that has to do with facts, with feelings. It muddies the water. If you're loving your children the way that you ought to, you don't need to proceed a difficult conversation with, now you know I love you, but. You should be able to start a conversation with, listen, I expect more from you than what I've been seeing lately. Or those god-awful words, the way, you've been behaving, the way you have been behaving has really disappointed me. That's almost worse than the... Man. But what I want you to note, church, from this is the fact that without hesitation, Moses says, you're a bunch of rebels, and I knew that from day one. God has been doing work in your life, around you, in you, through you, and the entire time, your eyes are fixed on something else, which demonstrates something to us, church. Say amen if you're listening. If God does anything in our lives, it's not because of how great we are. It's because of how great he is. It's because of how amazing God is, not because of how amazing we are. In fact, when he sees us, he sees sin. This is what Paul says in Romans 5, 8, when he says, and yet when we were sinners, God demonstrates his love for us in giving to us Jesus Christ. And just to paraphrase that verse, Romans 5, 8, what Paul is saying is when we were undeserving, when we should not have gotten it, when we could not have gotten anything but judgment, God provided Jesus That's how it works. Why is this important? It's important because you cannot forgive someone of sin they do not own. Let me say that again. The reason this is relevant to the prayer of Moses on behalf of the people of God to God is because Moses is not shirking responsibility here. He is saying, we see the sin It's difficult to work redemption, reconciliation, and forgiveness in a relationship where one party does not see the wrong. Those things cannot be provided where there is no accountability and responsibility. And speaking of forgiveness, finally, Moses took time to pray for their forgiveness. On two separate occasions, Moses said that he prayed, prostrate before the Lord, 
40 days and 40 nights. That's in verses 18 and 25. He keeps reiterating the fact that I laid out for you. I laid out for you. I went to an award banquet for my father one year. And uh, he was being recognized for some kind of Hall of Fame coaching or something in Dade County. I don't remember the exact award. But while we were there and they were recognizing three or four different people, we were sitting there at the banquet hall at FIU on the campus there in one of their nice rooms. And we were sitting there listening to people receive their awards. And one man got up and everybody clapped. And he came and he received his award. And everybody was afforded five or ten minutes for thank you speech and he started off by saying this I'm here today because somebody prayed for me friends I want to tell you the likelihood is incredibly high that you're here today because somebody has prayed for you do not underestimate the power of prayer we learn a lot about intercession from this narrative. Belonging to God, owning our sinfulness, and the understanding that some prayer takes time. I love what one author wrote. God's merciful forbearance towards sinful men is closely linked to consistent intercession. We got to pray. We should not be responsible for compounding the problem of sin with the absence of prayer. We might even take it a step further and say that prayer and intercession are the means by which God has ordained to do his work. The New Testament tells us this, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 5:17, pray without ceasing. Luke chapter 18, verse 1, that we should pray and not grow faint. James chapter 5, verse 16, says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, I'm not going to claim standing here on a stage in such a way that it would sound arrogant that I'm a righteous person and have seen things happen because of my prayer. But I will say this, I have prayed and I have seen things happen. I have prayed and God has worked. If you think that things will not happen because you are not a good person of prayer, you are right. Things are not happening because you are not good. Things happen not because you're good, but because the God to whom you pray is good. Don't give me this nonsense, this prerequisite, this spiritual IQ that must be satisfied before you come a person of prayer. Listen, a lot of people grow in their faith in the university of prayer. Pray. Go to class in prayer. Go through the different scriptures that talk about prayer and learn how to pray by praying. You don't get better at football by playing basketball. You don't get better at English by doing math. Who likes math? 
That's what we have Lane for. I think he's praying for us today. He's praying. See, he's praying, and he's good at math. (laughs) Become a person of prayer. How should I pray, Joe? Let me give you a couple of suggestions. A simple model for prayer can be ACTS, A-C-T-S. You write down in your journal, A-C-T-S, and then you pray like this, attributes, attributes. You know what attributes are? Attributes are qualities or characteristics. You start your prayer by saying this, God, I thank you that you are love. God, you are holy. God, you are mighty. God, you are all-knowing. Start your prayer with acknowledgement of who God is by noticing his attributes. Secondly, the C. The C is for what? Confession. This is when you go, uh, God, I'm not holy. God, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for my language. Forgive me for my eyes. Forgive me for my thoughts. This is when we confess. And the T is after noticing God's attributes and confessing our sin. The T stands for thanksgiving. This is usually where we go straight, straight away, right? We go, like sometimes Sarah has a joke in our house when we're all starving and food is ready and we don't want to spend a lot of time in prayer. We go, thank you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Amen. And we eat. Thanksgiving seems to be the thing that we rush to immediately, right? We say, let's pray. We go, thank you, God. Okay, well, there isn't anything wrong with that necessarily. But if you start with attributes, acknowledging who God is, and confession, then when you get to Thanksgiving, man, they carry some weight. Thank you, God, for forgiving me. Thank you, God, for who you are. Thank you, God, for your guidance. And then finally, the S is supplication. Supplication. This is when we intercede on behalf of other people. This is when we pray for those who are hurting or need healing. This is when we pray for those who might be walking off the path that God has placed their feet in, and we want them to be convicted and brought back in his righteousness for his glory onto the path that Jesus called them to walk. This is supplication. This is an easy formula for us to follow. I mentioned a journal. I would suggest that you journal. Some of you say, have you ever seen my handwriting? Oh, this will improve your handwriting. Yes, I've seen some of your handwriting because I have you sign up for the membership class, which, by the way, we're having a new memberships, a new members class coming up very soon. And I would love for you to be a part of it. Even if you are a member, you can learn more about us in an informal setting. Go to the class. A lot of people who have been members for a long time go to the class. They love it. They enjoy it. Amen. For those of you who have been. And what I want you to do is work on your penmanship because I can't read your emails. It's like illegible. I don't know if, if like we have just lost the art of penmanship or we just text so much that we forgot how to write. It's like some sort of mixture between block and cursive and gibberish. But anyway, when you journal your prayers... It slows you down. It causes you to take time to think. It makes you focus on the task at hand. Instead of praying and getting distracted by the fact that there's a red light ahead of you. Push off time in your day and sanctify it. Make it special. 
just for prayer. And write out your prayers. You will immediately, in the course of two to three days, see a difference in your prayer life. And you say, I don't know how to start. Start with Acts. A-C-T-S. And, and, and after you start to get the hang of it, one day, three days, three weeks, whatever it takes for you, you can pray. Be comfortable. He's our heavenly father, amen? And we can't disregard the fact that he's heavenly. We must have respect for God. But family, he's our father. He's also our father. And we don't want to up the father or up the heavenly and lose the aspect of either point. We need to have respect for God. But he is our father. And so we need to come to him in prayer. Friends, we must be people of prayer. Let's pray. Let's pray for the lost. Let's pray that God would use us. And if it's true, and this is certainly the lesson, that God has ordained to do much of his work through the prayers of his people, then far be it from us to not be people of prayer. Amen? Now, I also want to encourage you, before I go to the third and final point, to pray specifically. You notice that Moses does not say in this season of prayer, God, if you have a plan... God just generally, bl- no, he prays for his people, specifically, in view of the golden calf, in view of the fact that God is saying, I can do whatever I want in this regard. He prays specifically, not vaguely, specifically and purposefully, not generally. I want to encourage you to pray. That way. You know why Jesus teaches us to pray for those who persecute us and love our enemies? Because it's so hard to hate people you pray for. You know why you guys hate people? Because you don't pray for them. The second you start to pray for somebody, the hate dissolves. So if you're anything like me, you're going to have to negotiate. How often do I pray for this person? I got to make sure I keep my hate level like, I got to keep it there, you know? Keep me sharp. No, I'm just kidding. Listen, if you pray for someone who you dislike strongly, you can't hate them for long. There's something about praying to God for someone. Not just generally, guys, specifically by name. It changes your view and your attitude toward them. Finally, we see not only the calling by his righteousness and the covenant that he made with his people by his righteousness, but finally we see the command that is also by his righteousness. This is the third and final point that we're gathering from Moses' talk with his people as he recounts to them the situation that they have faced after having left Egypt and crossed the Jordan Which command is this? Well, this is the law that we recently studied in Deuteronomy 5. It's the Ten Commandments, which God had given to him as a written code of conduct for his people. Deuteronomy 4 tells us that the law, which we read in Deuteronomy 5, would be the wisdom and understanding in the sight of the nations. Deuteronomy 6 tells us that we are to teach this law to the next generations. And Deuteronomy 8 tells us that we are to be responsible to not forget it. 
Friends, I want to just stop here for a quick moment and say this. It is not attractive to the nations when we compromise on biblical principles. In fact, I'm convinced that the host of CNN or MSNBC or any other secular outlet asks Christians certain questions because that outlet has an expectation of what the Christian should say, but they know they're going to vacillate on the issue. There is nothing more pleasing to an unbeliever to get a believer to vacillate on what they say they're supposed to believe. I'm going to bring up a couple of issues, so if you want to put your toes away for a minute, please do so. But I'm going to mention homosexuality and abortion. Those are two issues that if you adhere to the biblical text, you cannot support. Now, this doesn't mean we hate people who have had abortions. And women do not have abortions alone. There's some irresponsible man that's behind her. We don't hate people who make these decisions. All sin separates us from God. Amen? The scripture says that homosexuality is not God's will and design for people, man or woman. This doesn't mean that we hate people who are homosexuals, whether they're promiscuous or monogamous. Monogamy is not the condition of righteousness. But now we have pastors all over the place who are vacillating on this issue so that they say, well, what Paul or Jesus or the Old Testament was really saying was, it's okay if you're gay or lesbian, it's just not okay if you have a lot of partners. Listen, that's hermeneutical gymnastics. That's not what's being said. The scriptures are clear. God created Adam and Eve and sanctified their relationship as a marriage so that a marriage and a relationship that involves sexuality and intimacy is between a man and a woman. These are two things that are absolutely clear in the Bible, but we have a popular culture of pastoral ministry today. We have a culture of pastoral ministry that has been lifted up by social media and popularity to such an extent that when questions are asked like, well, why don't you tell me how you would address something like abortion? The pastor who has become so famous and so well-followed on Instagram or TikTok says something like this, well, what I would really like to do is get to know that person's story. I want to just shift gears here for a minute since I'm not popular like that and just say this. That's not what the Bible says. That is the leftover nonsense jargon from the postmodernism that they invaded our country in the 90s and the early 21st century. The Bible is clear. That's not God's will for people. That's the answer. Period, the end. You don't have to be ugly. You don't have to wave a sign that says God hates a certain group of people. In fact, you shouldn't. I love what John Newton said. He said, 
The gospel is one hungry person telling another hungry person where he found bread. Friends, we're not going, hey, I'm a Christian now, sucker. You better watch out. I got a magazine full of verses and I'm going to blow you up. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is, listen, I am a sinner and I've received God's love. I've been invaded by God's love and I just want to share with you because the choices that you're making aren't what God wants for you. And God is going to judge everyone by Jesus Christ who doesn't submit to him. That's the truth of the gospel, guys. We're not aiming at being ugly, but we must aim at being honest. The law that God gave us is our wisdom in the sight of the nations. It doesn't mean they agree. Agreement and wisdom are not synonymous. But when an unbelieving group of people, a news network, a journalist, whatever, ask questions of Christians that they believe they're going to give a certain answer to, and those Christians don't give that answer, they laugh at orthodoxy. Because we've got a group of people over here saying one thing and another group of people over here saying another. And both groups are saying we're Christians and there is nothing further from the truth on this issue. So when we have an opportunity to represent God's word, we must represent his word, the truth, in love. But we must represent the truth. You might recall... That after Israel's sin, Moses threw the original tablets on the floor. And we're not going to address that. I'm sure somebody in this place has broken a plate or two. It's awfully quiet. Anyway. But Moses prayed. He interceded for the people. And God commanded him to bring two more tablets like the first to him. And it says that the commands were given again by his righteousness. Chapter 10, verse 4. He wrote on the tablets the same writing as before. And then in chapter 10, verse 5, it says, Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I made. And they are there as the Lord commanded me. Two things I want you to note from this text. First, God's word didn't change. The people did. God's word didn't change. The people did. Listen, God didn't change his word to accommodate the failings of the unbelieving people. He kept his word the same. It says in chapter 10, verse 4, he gave Moses the exact same word. We cannot negotiate on these things, friends. We have to hold the line. We're acknowledging in our country, our great country, the United States of America, Memorial Day, in which we commemorate those who gave their lives for something that they were told was greater than they were. And I wonder today if those men and women who gave their life in service to their country, I wonder if they're curious as to whether or not 
in the end, it's going to have been worth it. What a mess we are in. Now, that's my opinion. And you're entitled to disagree with me, but you're wrong. (laughs) When I see what our country went through to rid the world of evil regimes and protect its name and self-respect only to be infiltrated by the same moronic ideology that it battled in combat on the college campus, in social media. It's disheartening, and it's fearful. Now, I'm not saying that if you agree on my view of World War I and II or Vietnam or anything else, that you're right or I'm wrong or whatever. I'm, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. We have a virus that has infected our culture, and it is infecting the church. And the virus is compromise. We've become complacent. God does not change his word. The standards that existed then are the standards that exist now. One of the greatest tragedies that infected the U.S. was the philosophy of postmodernism, as I mentioned, which is one of those tenets of belief that says truth is relative. We might believe this is true, but what's true for me is not true for you, or what's true for you is not true for me. Fast forward 20 years, and this is where we are. Males don't know if they're men. Females don't know if they're females. Men are competing in athletic competitions in NCAA sports against women. And people are negotiating and compromising. Friends, this is stupid. This is absolutely nonsensical. And Christians, in order to be winsome and nice, are taking the word that has never changed or been compromised and they're changing it, and they're compromising it. Don't miss this, family. The commands come by his righteousness, which means that if he doesn't change, his word doesn't change. I, the Lord, do not change, Malachi 3.6 says. We have something to offer the world, friends. And it isn't compromise, it's truth, it's consistency, it's reliability in his revelation. First thing I want you to notice is his word didn't change, but secondly, I want you to note that the word of God was kept safe and sacred. God kind of says to Moses, before I give you these two other tablets and I write the very same words on them, I saw what you did before, I want you to build an ark. I want you to immediately put them in the ark. (laughs) I don't want you to break these things again. He, He rewrites everything that was written word for word, Moses says, and Moses says, I took them like God said, and I put them in the ark. They were kept safe and sacred. Listen, speaking of the word of God, 
We should have a special view of God's word. It should be sacred to us. Psalm 37, verse 31 says, The law of his God, speaking of the righteous, the law of his God is in his heart, and his steps don't slip. In Psalm 119, verse 11, it says, I have stored up your word in my heart. Church, it doesn't matter how many copies of the Bible you own if it doesn't leave the shelf and live in your heart. Get the Bible off your shelf and get it in your heart and in your head. you got to think and meditate on the word of God and let it live in you richly. That's what meditation means. You're always considering it. You're always thinking about it because it doesn't matter if conservative ideology sometimes looks like Christianity. This is not that. Christianity is Christianity. Conservative isn't, isn't Christianity. You, as a Christian, must first and foremost, always and forever, walk a Christian line, not a conservative line. Now, there are a lot of tenets of conservative, conservatism that, that, that just coincidentally fall on the path of Christianity. But the two are not the same. Let me challenge you here. Are you so emerged and knowledgeable about the Word of God that it's attractive to people, that it appears like wisdom and understanding. And what's more, is it precious to you to the extent that you protect it the way Moses protected these two stones? If somebody blasphemes God and starts talking nonsense about the Word of God, do you bark? That's what Calvin said. Even a dog barks when his master is attacked. Or do we not bark anymore? Because we've been convinced that Christians who bark are doing a disservice to Jesus. I'm not saying you have to be ugly and argue with every single person you come into contact with. Don't be that person. You know, like the heat loss last night. Right? Oh, terrible. What was it, 104, 103? What was it, Paula? 104, 103. Oh, so close. And you go, hey, did you see the heat last night? And somebody goes, oh, I don't see the Miami heat in the Bible. Well, you don't want to go anywhere with that guy. It's okay if you watch a basketball game. It's okay if you talk about things. Listen, what I'm saying is this, friends. We all live in this world. We're in it, but we're not of it. And the thing that distinguishes us from everybody else is not the way we dress. It's the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is calling us and convicting us to know his word and to spread its truth. But we can't do that if it's not in our head and if it's not in our heart. It's not going to live in our head and heart if it never leaves the shelf. Make a decided effort. To spend word, sorry, to spend time in the word of God. Oh, we don't have to carry a copy of it everywhere we go. You already carry your phone. Get the Crossway app. The ESV translation of the Bible is free. Has an audio feature on there. You can use the man or the Irish woman. I use the Irish woman. <laughs> it's just a little different. When you work out, Listen to the Bible. 
When you're driving in your car, listen to the Bible. On your lunch hour or whatever time you have, if you have time to get away from your place of employment outside or whatever, go for a walk. Listen to the word of God. Let the word of God influence you and infect you in such a way that you're blessed. To close, let me say this. The crossing, the covenant, and the command are all part of the redemptive dialogue that we read in the Old Testament based on God's righteousness, not our own. Amen? But I want to tear in a little corner here and end with a couple of nuggets that I hope are a blessing to you because that Old Testament dialogue, excuse me, that redemptive dialogue is not only found in the Old Testament, it's also found in the New Testament. For example, write this down. Just as the Israelites crossed the Red Sea and the Jordan River into the promised land, so Jesus says in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed or crossed from death to life. We see the crossing. In the New Testament, but just as the Israelites received the covenant, so the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 9:15. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Oh, we're talking about more than land now, church. A new covenant and eternal inheritance. But not only do we have our own crossing and our own covenant, finally, in the New Testament, we also have our own command. We receive this in John 15, 12, where our Savior, and may we have no controversy with our Savior. He tells us, this is my commandment. Love one another like I have loved you. 